right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the We're Kicking a Podcast, where I get the privilege to talk to the legends and warriors of the martial arts world. Today, I'm being joined Colin Van Dusen, a master in the art of American Kempo. Sir, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. And yourself? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for your time, sir. I appreciate it. And for the, for the listeners that don't know, Mr. Van Dusen, Colin, is actually my martial arts instructor. Um, started back in 2002, 2003. Antonio Guitron, if you remember him. I do. Uh, funny enough, he one day he showed up at my house and said, hey, I'm going to go with my old martial arts instructor and uh, Hunton Park. So I guess he went to go check it out. You were not there anymore. And he found you a couple of days later here at Bixby. And I believe that's around the time where you were opening up the studio here at Bixby. Uh, we did at. Two in two thousand, actually no, nineteen ninety nine. I'm oh, sorry, oh, nineteen ninety nine. In the summer of ninety nine. Oh, all right. So he found you. We. Uh, I remember he was in his bike. I was in my skateboard. <laughs> I fell off coming over here, but we got here and you looked at me and you said, "Don't you want to try?" And I was like, "Uh, maybe." And you're like, "What do you mean, maybe? You want to try? Yes or no? Maybe next time." And you just went, "Okay." And after that, he kept coming in. And he he kept saying, hey, he's asking about you. He's asking about you. So I decided to come and you said, are you going to join in? Are you going to try it? And that's all she wrote after that. I was like, yes, yes. And what yeah. I really wanted to make sure you did is learn how to do a proper shoulder roll. So when you fell off your skateboard again, you were good to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, I mean, after that, that's all she wrote. And ever since then, it's been wonderful. And granted, I didn't know how... And I'll say this, not just because you're my instructor, but how much of a great person you are. I, well, you thank know. you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So for the listeners that don't know, you're an eighth degree black belt in American Kempo. That's correct. Yes. And uh, for those, I mean, I, I know you, I, I know much about you, but for the listeners that don't know, can sure. you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I started in around 1981 at a studio in Burlington, Vermont. And my first instructor's name was Steve Shover. Uh, later, one of his black belts, uh, whose name was Lori, ended up becoming my instructor from around probably blue or green belt. I think green green belt uh, to, through to black belt until I actually moved from the state. Uh, but we did – it was under the Fred Villari's uh, banner at the time. My instructor had trained for probably – I don't know, 15 to 17 or so years prior to joining with Valores. And he was a police officer during the day and was trying to teach karate at night, but didn't really have any business understanding about how to do that and be able to do it full time, which was what I think he wanted to do. Um, so he was really reliant on his police officer job during the day to pay his bills. And he tried to fake it in the evening, but he was faking it with the, the way things were done in the, you know, 60s, 70s, uh, and at that time, the early 80s, which was a lot different than what it is today as far as how the classes were you know, taught and what was it expected of you. Because I had a pretty clear understanding from early on when I first started training that my instructor, I'm not sure, was really didn't really care whether or not you showed up if you just weren't there to learn martial arts the way he was willing to teach it. Um, so there's a lot of people that ended up falling by the wayside after one or two classes because it was a pretty rigorous experience and um, 
there was a lot that was expected of you and the uh you know the fighting and stuff like that it was just it was just kind of probably common for the era really it wasn't probably anything special that was happening in our dojo but it was just something that was you know prevalent if you grew up doing martial arts during that you know the 60s 70s uh it just was what it was you're gonna Get, get knocked up a little bit, knocked around a little bit, and uh, some things get broken and some blood being spilled, but it was just part of the training. Um, so I, anyways, I I got my uh, black belt when I was 16 years old. A couple of years after that, I'd moved to California, and I sought out training in California. So when, I was, when you're growing up on the East Coast, all the magazines and books that I was ever reading were all about the martial artists who lived on the West Coast. So right. now that I was living in California, I was like, well, this is going to be a great opportunity to start training with some of these people. And uh, I sought out, you know, one of the first studios I actually walked into was a man by the name of Bob Perry, who was an Ed Parker black belt. Uh, I kind of dubbed him the voice of the internationals because he always did the uh, announcing at the internationals over the years. Uh Ironically, at the time, I didn't know this, but my who would become my future instructor, that was actually one of uh, Bob Perry's students as well back in the day was uh, with Bob White. And uh, I ended up only there for a short period of time because I moved and then I moved up to uh, Anaheim Hills and one of uh, another student of Mr. White's. Uh, Dave Rock was opening up a studio at that time when I was driving by, stopped in, they were doing some sparring and I obviously I love doing that. So got involved with them, trained with him for several years and then ended up uh, at Mr. White studio and I've uh, been there ever since. Oh, so Mr. Steve Schober, when you said uh, rigorous training, uh, of course, back in that era, it was a little more, uh, you could say hardcore than what it is now. They weren't. They they definitely weren't following the the business model of everybody gets a trophy and everybody gets a pat on the back and a high five. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It was a batch of honor to leave with a black eye or at least some kind of bruise during those. Times. This is true. There was a uh, there's a lot of stories to be told about that particular era, but it was kind of. Um, I don't know when you're, it's like anything when you're growing up, if you grow up poor and that's all, you know, it's not really anything special because that's what, you know, if you grow up rich, that's what, you know, it's nothing really special. So it was kind of like the same way with, with the martial arts. My training was just what I knew. That's all I knew. So I, I didn't really take it to be either too much or too little or too hard or too soft. It just, it just was. And, you know, if the ones that I really enjoyed it and um, I, I enjoyed the challenge and I, my mother got me involved partially. I, I wanted to get involved, but my mother got me involved because I was having a really rough time in school. I didn't find out until I was about 35 that I was dyslexic. And they tested me for everything under the sun when I was, you know, in elementary school and in middle school to try to find out why I was having such a challenge with schooling. Uh, of all the things they didn't test me for was dyslexia. So had they, had they started with that, I'd have been set, but uh, not so much. So anyways, long story short, I, I was getting in a lot of fights. My confidence was way low because I, I, don't, I was having a hard time in school. So there you can, it's easy to adopt the opinion that you're not very smart and there's, you have learning problems or something else. Cause you, you're being brought to doctors that are trying to find out why you're having learning problems. Um, 
but it was obviously something pretty simple. It's just I was transposing numbers and getting that backwards, so I had a really hard time with math. But um, getting in fights all the time, uh, you know, it would be easier for me to just punch somebody if I thought they were laughing at me. Uh, so I would constantly try to crack jokes to get them to laugh with me instead of at me. And that was kind of my self-defense mechanism at the time. So I became the class clown. I was always kind of, you know, joking and fun. But anybody who I thought that was kind of giving me a hard time in any other sense of, of the word, I would just, it was just too easy to put hands on and, and start fighting. So principal's office became very familiar with. Uh, talks with mom, with mm-hmm. the principal, very, became very familiar. Uh, got involved with martial arts. And the first time I kicked somebody in the head in class, I was told that I did a good job. And that obviously was a big difference between (laughs) kicking somebody in the head at school and being sent to the principal's office and being expelled or whatever. So um, because of that positive reinforcement of, hey, it's okay to punch him in the face, we actually encourage that. And we encourage you to kick him in the head too. Um, I was like, okay, cool. I got an outlet for that kind of boy youthful you know energy that i think most kids have and uh i didn't get in fights after that other than the ones that people just gave me no other choice but to you know defend myself or whatever so uh, it was a big turning point and during that time did you guys have those macho gloves or those sap gloves that there are now they didn't uh they had just come out with i think june Rhee had just come out with something I don't know if it was late 70s, early 80s, but our studio didn't really have them. They they, they started coming up with cotton uh, cotton gloves, and I think more of the Taekwondo studios had worn them for competition. Just something, to, a little bit of foam to cover the knuckles and or the foot to uh, help try. I don't even know if it was to try to help not hurting the person you were punching or kicking. I think it was more so you didn't hurt your knuckles or your foot, but I don't know. We, I, we didn't use them much and they, eventually they started to become more popular. And, and obviously people started seeing the value of, you know, not hurting your opponent while you're trying to train together. It's the same concept with the, uh, you know, Japanese swordsmanship, you know, they use a Shania or, um, you know, a Boken sword during yeah. practice. Cause if you cut somebody with a live blade, oh, yeah. it's quite a recovery time. So, <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, wrap your hands in some tape and, and, and go, for <laughs> go for it. Yeah. So you move out to Cali and, um, you had a, you actually had a good job, right? As you were practicing, I mean, you're practicing martial arts. You had a good job. I did. And then you just martial arts for your life. So, you, yeah. So you, uh, you decided to trade that off. And I mean, obviously now it, it's helped out quite a lot, but during that time, it was pretty challenging. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I worked I worked for my uncle for a few years and we retrofitted transformers all throughout the state of California and the the prison systems and the college uh, campuses were um retrofilling and retrofitting PCB transformers, which is a at the time the EPA uh, or the Environmental Protection Agency had mandated that all of the transformers that had this particular type of PCB or it's called polychlorinated biphenyls. They found out a little too late that it was a carcinogen. And in Japan, they were spreading it on the roads to keep the dust down and it seeped into the food chain and got into the, you know, the vegetation that people were eating and started causing cancer. So they, anyways, they, they banned that. And we spent, you know, a lot of time just 
pulling transformers that had the oil in it, putting in dry types or uh, retrofilling them and getting their parts per million of their PCB content down. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a few years. And then I went on to work with uh, General Electric, which they rebuild uh, this particular part of the, the General Electric company rebuilt high voltage power distribution transformers like the the large ones that you would see it um, like the hoover dam the big large uh mm-hmm. they come in on a rail car and use a mm-hmm. 400 ton crane to pick them up so I, I did that for several years and made great money worked all the time and absolutely hated it <laughs> yeah the, the the saying that money cannot buy you happiness is partly true and partly not because when you do have more money, you can, you know, show up to your problems in a limousine or, or a Ferrari. <laughs> but, uh, when you absolutely hate what it is that you're doing, whatever they pay and you just, it usually doesn't, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I've heard all too many stories about people, you know, making millions of dollars in one day, getting up in the morning and going to work and they make a right hand turn and they just keep driving and they never come back <laughs> and they leave everything. So I got, I got part of that. I actually went down to, with a friend of mine, uh, Tony Satch Williams, who was a former, you know, world champion uh, martial artist, uh, extremely talented uh, martial artist, really powerful guy. Um, we went down to Australia to do some seminars with uh, a friend named Paul Zedrow, who has some some martial arts studios down there. He was holding his first tournament, which he still holds to this day. Now, probably thirty. Uh, 30 years later. Uh, so we were doing some seminars down there at his first tournament and, you know, I'm petting kangaroos and what's been said about blonde, blue eyed Australian women is true. <laughs> there are a few of those down there. So I had a great time and what came back um, and I was just, you know, during that trip, I'm thinking I'm down here doing what I love and I'm getting paid to do it. And I'm going to go back to this job that I hate and I just, it didn't work for me anymore. I mean, the, the cognitive dissonance that went along with that was just more than I could bear. So I went into the manager's office and, you know, resigned. And my, the, my manager at the time could not have been happier that I resigned. Be- because it was a union job, they they really couldn't fire me. But I was, when I worked, I worked extremely hard, put all my energy and effort into it. But when I didn't work, there would be sometimes a week, two weeks at a time, three weeks at a time, I just wouldn't show up for work wouldn't call in nothing. And when I run out of money, I would show back up at work and there really wasn't anything I could do about it because of the union, which in hindsight, uh, you know, they just, they should have found a way to fire me. Cause I was just, that was, that was definitely not what you should be doing, but I just hated it. And, uh, right. so anyways, quit, quit that job. And within several months, uh, several months I went bankrupt because I could no longer afford the lifestyle mm-hmm. that I lived making the type of money I did. Yeah. And, um, uh, but started the studio and, um, it's been going ever since. <laughs> so let's backtrack a bit. Uh, you were with Mr. Brock, David Brock. Mm-hmm. And so I know you got your black belt under Bob White. However, you, were you training with Mr. White and David Brock at the same time or? No, I, I started training with, uh, Mr. Brock d- didn't actually even really know who Mr. White was. Oh, uh, it, if it had been brought up in conversations or whatever, the name, it just didn't click with me. And at the time I was, 
you know, I was young at the time and my goal was just to spar and fight. And there was a lot of it going on at, uh, Dave Rock Studios. So I just didn't really have any need to go anywhere else. It was not far from my home. And, um, so anyways, I did, I didn't, eventually I started questioning, okay, well, if Dave Brock got as good as he did, he must've learned it from somebody and who did he learn it from? And then I started seeing some of the people that I was training with had also trained with, um, Mr. White and, you know, accompanied them on a couple different occasions down to his studio and, um, Costa Mesa and, you know, did some sparring class and stuff like that. And then eventually I just, uh, Mr. Brock's studio had, um, not sure what what happened. There was a transition as far as the studio is concerned, as far as where they were located. So I ended up starting to make that trip down to Costa Mesa on a regular basis, and um, he became my instructor after that. Wow! And was Mr. White still actively sparring during that time? Uh, by any chance, you get because where I'm referring to, I remember when I used to see you or Mr. Daniels or you or Mr. Pombero fight. I was starstruck. I was like, my goodness. So, but any chance did you ever see him spar? And I mean, how was that? I did. Mr. White's been, you know, he's been an instructor for, you know, 50 plus years now. So, you know, the time that he was really active in sparring was far before I showed up at his studio. Uh, Not to say that he wasn't sparring anymore, but, you know, I just didn't have the opportunity or the benefit of seeing what he was doing at the time. So, um yeah, I kind of missed that golden era in yeah. that regard. <laughs> I only wonder how that was. I yeah. mean, I imagine it. So you you started doing tournaments, and that I mean, again, it, when I see you fight, it's super. It's awesome. I mean, I get Star Trek. I appreciate how, it. How many tournaments have you done throughout your life? And if you could just, I have, just I have, I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> Any tournament that comes to mind that you that you could talk about i love my friend uh paul zedro's tournament in australia because um it's the largest one in the southern hemisphere but it's one that i just have such a long excuse me a long connection to with regard to going down there and teaching some seminars coming back quitting my job and then starting my studio that that you know it kind of it pushed me over the edge to make sure that this was a full-time thing so i think it's more the nostalgia of that tournament and um I've had the great fortune of of winning it every time that I've gone down there as far as the fighting is concerned. Actually, I take that back with one exception. Raymond Daniels beat me by one point in overtime <laughs> one time, but uh, that's right. I mean, he's he's uh, uh, hands down probably the, the best point fighter in the history of sport karate. So if you're going to lose by a point to anybody, that's not a bad guy to lose to. So and he's, he's a great friend. So um, anyways, that was... Uh, that's probably one that stands out. There's, I mean, there were several. We've have done it, uh, you know, all over the place, uh, different countries and whatever. So I mean, it's just, I think the traveling and all the, the unique experiences, traveling with their friends and stuff like that, that makes pretty much all of those tournaments really cool. It's not necessarily the tournament; it's more of the experience of the tournament that's always been, you know, a big a big memory for me. Oh, when you talk about experiences, I remember Willing Hills, um, March Madness. Cecil Peoples? Yes, Cecil Peoples. Yes. <laughs> so, Master Peoples, yes, sir. <laughs> so, uh, there was a tournament. You were obviously on my corner. It was a tied. I don't know if you remember this, but it was tied. 4-4. Did I tell you to blitz? Yes. <laughs> you said blitz him. And I looked at you like, why? And you just, just trust me, just blitz him. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as the referee said go, I blitz and I won. 
So and there you go. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. And what I'm trying to get at is that your favorite thing to do in inspiring a, a blitz or what's No, that was a strategic uh point I was making for you as you're coming yeah. up so that you understood sport karate is obviously just a game. It's not for yeah. real. So there's uh as long as you understand that aspect of it, that it's just not real combat, but it is a, it, the techniques, concepts, principles that lie behind sport karate can be applied to full contact, you know, as we did years later in, in the WCL. But um, the, it, typically when the, t the score is tied, referees are human beings like everybody else. So they're influenced to some extent by, what they see and or what they see first. And even if what they see first is not the point, if what they see first is the aggressiveness that could warrant a point, sometimes they give that regardless of whether it got struck first or not, uh, because you were the initiator, you're the one that took that first charge and they see a human running towards the other human. So they, it's like a jousting rod and the other guy's just standing still. Right. So they, they tend to, uh, If you gave them, if you gave 10 different referees the opportunity to look at the same blitz and make a decision, which was, was it a point or not? Most of them would call it a point just because the person's moving forward. Unless it's such a real clear, you stuck your arm out there to back knuckle them and somebody drilled you with a sidekick before you could hit them. Then of course, then it, it doesn't go that way. But we've just found statistically over time, if the score is tied yeah. and the time has run out, blitz and you're likely to win yeah so that was good i, I love I, i love it all blitzing is uh i did a lot of it i mean that was um that was a uh, that's a good fun part of it because you can obviously if you do it well you can do it fast if you can do it oh, fast yeah. you can score points and if you score points you can win and winning is pretty cool so <laughs> all of it's all good oh and it's um i have another story i mean you were with me and, and mrs v was with me but It was a Long Beach City College, a tournament. I was able to get to the finals. And, I mean, I don't remember who, who did that tournament, but I'll tell it as I remember it, as I recall it. The, I am here, full gi, other students from the same tournament, team bracket, full gis, and then this guy, just the gi pants, a white shirt, and putting on his gear, he's stretching and whatnot. And it's the finals. It's him, him and I. And... uh It's because you said it's just a game and, you know, the what is supposed to be just a game of tag. But this guy kept hitting me hard. And I I like to watch my control, but I remember the first punch he gave me, I was like, oh, it's going to be that kind of match. And you and Mrs. B just looked at me and just gave me that look that you guys always go, what are you going to do about it? Because <laughs> I remember every tournament where it was two power one students going, you went to the referee and said, If they knock each other out, it's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so you just get, you and we gave me that look, and I was like, "Oh, it's gonna be that type of game." And luckily, I won. But you know, it's uh, it was it was pretty fun. But yeah, I mean, I just re recall those times where <laughs> it was two power one people. You went up. They're my students. Whatever happens, let it be. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> It's a good opportunity to challenge yourself, right? Oh, it was. I mean, those times were were awesome. <laughs> um, so. WCO, how did that come about? How did you get approached to that? Well, uh, Raymond Daniels was working with us here at 
the power of one at the time. And he wanted to make a transition from sport karate into full contact fighting and asked me to coach him. And as we were training for that part of it, he, they, Chuck Norris, uh, kind of resurrected a league that he'd started back in, uh, you know, I think the early seventies. And back then it was only like a few teams, but one of them was the Los Angeles stars. And that just happened to be the team that they wanted to, you know, put us with and had asked Raymond cause they wanted Raymond, uh, to be one of the fighters in the league because he had a lot of charisma and he thought they would be a good draw for, you know, the, uh, television and whatnot. It's a good thing about, you know, Raymond and anybody like him, the Conor McGregor's or anybody who's got the ability to put on a bit of a show. It's good for fans either way, because you either want them to see them win in a spectacular way, like you're used to seeing them, or you want to see them get their butt whooped. Right. And you want to see them get shut up. So either way, you're going to have fans showing up for one of those two things. And I think that that's that's what kind of what they wanted for Raymond. He's obviously an extremely talented uh, athlete uh, right now. He's obviously the um, the Bellator welterweight world champion. So uh, in, in kickboxing, and he's uh, now undefeated in MMA as well for uh, with Bellator. So he's he's got uh, he's just got a stage presence, and I think that that WCL wanted that part of it. So when they started saying, "Okay, well, we've got a coach for that team," and Raymond said, "Well, I'm not gonna." do it unless you have uh Colin Van Dusen do it uh, be the, be the coach um so the at the time the commissioner of the league which is uh, the president of uh ISCA or um International Sport Karate Association uh Corey Schaefer called me up kind of gave me a quasi interview over the phone to just find out who I was and <laughs> and then finally just said okay you know sounds good you can uh, uh you'll be the coach of the uh, the LA team and you know, funny enough about that whole experience is that our team was primarily comprised of sport karate fighters and um, all of the kickboxers that made up all of the other teams in the leagues had a preconceived belief that we either one weren't qualified to be in the league because we were sport karate right. fighters or that it was actually unsafe for us to be in the league because we're sport karate fighters. Like it was almost like we're putting ourselves at risk getting in there with quote unquote, full fledged real kickboxers. (laughs) And um, so match after match, after the, the, the league started, we heard the rumblings in the, in the locker rooms and the snicker and, and all the other, you know, giving us a hard time. This, that after about the, I don't know, sixth or eighth event into the first season, I started seeing some of the same people who were talking smack from other teams start to come up to me at their events and say, Hey, you know what? I just wanted to let you know, I just signed up at a sport karate studio so I could get better at my full contact. And then, so you could start to see the shift that was happening in their minds because we were constantly beating people. And, you know, long story short, we were the only team to have never lost in, in the, uh, in the WCL. And it was all primarily sport karate fighters. So that says something about sport karate. If you can put a full contact flair to it, you can make it just as devastating, if not more than, uh, than just traditional kickboxing. And that's kind of where my next question was going towards. Uh, do you believe WCO was a breaking point? Cause I know back in the day, sport karate or point fighting was, I don't know if frowned upon was the word to say. However, people didn't take it seriously. 
But because they didn't know. They didn't know that it helps you close in the distance and get away fast enough. They didn't, they didn't know that once you close in the distance, you could get one, two, three shots in and then back away. So you believe that was the breaking point in WCO was like, okay, these sports karate guys, they're, they're serious business. You know, I don't know if it came from that or not, but I, I just, I do know this is that usually, um, there's only a, probably one reason why anybody believes or doesn't believe in anything. And it's usually through lack of knowledge. Got it. And if you've ever gotten your ribs cracked or your nose broken <laughs> or your face split open doing sport karate, you're not doubting that it doesn't have some power to be able to do some serious damage, but the ones that have never been out there and then have never seen it or never felt it, it's really easy to sit on the sidelines and be judgmental about, you know, is this, is, you're just playing a game of tag and don't get me wrong. You find enough because it's, they, they, they made it. So if you hold a karate tournament, you could have four year old kids getting in there and punching and kicking and not doing any real damage to one another, but then you could, and the and beginner four year olds obviously right? right, and then you could fast forward to a teenager that's a green belt that's been training since he was four years old, but now has some pretty decent skill and ability, and has now started to come into their own, whether it's male or female, come into the strength of their body as they're starting to approach adulthood. They can start to do some damage. Well, then you add a black belt division; those sixteen year olds who now twenty one that are been training since they were four start to get some serious power and ability, then just go up another notch where it's like, okay, there's some people that have been doing this since they're kids. Now they're in their thirties. And they've been doing it for a long time. They're in great shape. They're great athletes. And they, they can, they you can just do some serious damage to somebody if you don't pull things or control it, but they made it. So a wide variety of people could do it. You could be that accountant that was 50 years old, a little overweight but still wanted the joy of competition and challenging yourself. You could get out there and do it without potentially having to have a cat scan at the end of it, you know, be brought to the hospital. Uh, so kind of made it fun for everybody. So I'm not sure to answer your question, whether or not WCL was the, the thing that put it over, but I will say this, it definitely over time garnered the respect of a lot of full contact kickboxers about what sport karate fighters could do. And uh, yeah, I think we made a, made a pretty good example of that part. Oh yeah, because uh, I mean I recall back when um, I think it was Woodley he was gonna fight Thompson uh, and uh, Woodley actually looked up Mr. Daniels because Mr. Daniels was the only one that had a Stephen Thompson style. So that's why I mean, and of course Mr. Daniels comes from a sports karate background. So that's why I'm like, okay, now sports karate, you know, it's getting taken serious, and, and I like that because I remember when I was younger and starting this. Uh, People just say, what are you doing? Are you just tagging? I'm all like, well, that's our sport. But if I, I get, and I never doubted it. However, I was like, if I really did psychic you, or if I really did come in with a jab, you're going to get hit. So if you look at <laughs> Steven Wonderboy Thompson, yeah, he's obviously a very, you know, reputable fighter in the WCL. I mean, he's yes, had yes. some, some significant wins. He's had a few losses, but he's de definitely gone in there and proven that just because you do sport karate, which he came from that type of a background, a karate background, that uh, it doesn't make you any any weaker than anybody else. You know, he's got a lot of heart, yeah. and uh, you know he's done a really good job of representing karate, just as Raymond Daniels has done uh, within the the MMA world. So yeah, <laughs> so the Power One Self Defense Institute. I mean, I've 
could you just help me out for the people that are listening that don't know Power of One? How did that name come about? So as I mentioned before, when I went to Australia with Satch Williams, we were getting ready to leave in about a week, and we drove past um, the marquee of a movie theater, and the movie with Morgan Freeman, The Power of One, had just come out. I never saw the movie, and a, there was a book written by Bryce Courtney that the movie was made after. Uh, that I'd never written the book, written or read the book rather either, but I saw the words "Power of One" on the marquee, and for those that are listening that would know Satch Williams, now he's a pretty dark-skinned Nubian uh, black man who, you know, me being you know as Caucasian as you could pretty much be, like a you know like Casper the Friendly Ghost, and this you know dark Nubian-skinned black man. <laughs> I, it reminded me of the yin and yang, which the, you know, the, the white and black of, of that part of it and us going down to the, uh, to Australia, we kind of like named our little seminar tour, the power of one. Wow. So ironically enough as well, that uh, Bryce Courtney was living in Australia uh, as well. We just, I didn't know any of this stuff until a long time after that. And um yeah, kind of a whole funny story that goes along with that and Mrs. V and the power of one as well. But uh, that's how we, you know, when I came back and I quit my job, I just took the same name and called it the power of one oh, self-defense institute because, um, yeah, I've always liked the idea of groups of people working together for a common cause. There's far too much uh, me, myself and I going on out in the world and there's not enough us and we and I think that's probably a larger cause for most of the world's problems is um, it's the greed. It's the trying to get one over on someone else. It's, it's always that, you know, one up and not trying to collectively try to make something happen as a group. And, uh, you know, I get there's reasons why some of that stuff happens, but at the same time, it doesn't justify it or make it right in a lot of cases as well. So um, we've been trying to, between that concept and the concept of that one person can make a difference, uh, you can be that spark that ignites a flame that brings a lot of people together. So it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, a large group of people to start with, right? It could be that one drop of water that starts the waterfall. And um, so hopefully we've been over the years trying to impress that upon the students to have more teamwork and have more uh, sense of community. And, you know, we're, we've been active in our community for a lot of years, hopefully leading by example, as far as that goes and that with our, in our nonprofit foundation and whatnot. But that's kind of the long and short of that, that story with power of one. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I didn't mention this earlier, however, it's, it's just coming back to me, but when I was joining that class, I, you looked when I first joined you, I did look at you and you looked at me and I said, Oh, well, you know what? I don't have the income yet, and you're like, I didn't ask you for that. I just asked you, do you want to, do you want to participate? And I said, no, you don't get it. I don't have the money yet. You're like, that's not what I asked you. Do you want to try? And you said, you know what? You went, you went to the little back room you had back in the day. You brought out a gi and here, go put this on and come on in. And I was like, okay, thank you. And yeah, that's after that. That's all she wrote. And yeah, and like you said, yeah, um, one person can make a difference and. You definitely made a difference in my life. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, that's, I appreciate the uh, the kind words. It's, yeah. it's good to know that what's being said or done over the years is actually making an impact in some capacity or another. Uh, there's a uh, there's enough people in my opinion that are 
taken up space on this planet. <laughs> Granted, they've got their own missions that they're all set about on, but uh, there's a lot of them that are on some selfish missions, which yeah. I'm glad you got something from it. Oh, I did. I, I mean, I don't know if you recall, I used to be extra shy, super shy, and didn't talk much. And <laughs> it happened two occasions the same day we went to Vegas. <laughs> yeah. You said, Jose, I didn't know you talked this much. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? That's uh, the fact that we're sitting here doing a podcast with uh, with you. That's uh, that's another clear sign that you know the, the confidence has changed a lot in that part. Because I I definitely would not have expected this to happen. You know, twenty years ago, that's for sure. Oh, or yeah. however long ago that was. Oh, that was yeah, two thousand two, two thousand one, two thousand two is when I came in, and yeah, I mean, I honestly I was just in the shell. I mean, that's and that's the story I tell to a lot of parents that come in that that say, oh my. My boy's too shy, you know, he doesn't join in. And sometimes, I mean, most of the time I tell the parents, how about we switch the words, you know, my child is confident and start putting those words in them. Because that I know that would have helped me out a lot when I was younger. Oh, yeah, my, and I heard all the time uh, in Spanish, es porque es penoso, because he's shy. And I'm pretty, I'm, I'm sure I heard this from you, but if you hear that a lot, you're going to start believing that. That's a fact. Yeah, so if... Parents start telling their kids, oh, he's confident, you know, he'll, he'll get it, he'll get it, he'll get it. The kids will start hearing it more and more, and okay, well, I'll try it. And we had those kids that cry outside of the studio because they don't want to come in. Then they come in the studio, but they cry because they don't want to go on the mat. Then they get on the mat, but they don't do anything. They're just sitting down. And before you know it, they're standing up in their attention stands, and they're doing a class. So that's, I mean, I love every single student, but those are the students that kind of stick out to me as well. Yeah. yeah, there's uh, uh, countless experiences over the years with kids in those similar positions. And uh, it's the reason why I've been so passionate about martial arts my whole life is not only what it's done for myself, but what I've seen it do for so many, you know, just thousands of, of young people and uh, not just young people, but some people that started a little bit later in life, but they still, you know, wrap their brain around the the idea that I can and not only I can, I will. And then that all of a sudden starts springboarding into so many other things that they just didn't believe that they were capable of doing. And I think that's where a lot of the confidence is stemming from, which is great. It's, uh, we obviously could, you could hold a whole podcast, which I'm sure that most of the people that you've interviewed have kind of had similar opinions about what martial arts does for it. I mean, we we're, we're obviously a bit biased because we've, you know, made our lives doing it, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good stuff. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I love it. <laughs> so besides martial arts, I, obviously I know, but you love to read. Mm -hmm. You love to read. Um, any recommendations that you would give everyone to open up a book and start reading? You know, that's just a really challenging question because it's easy to put off, you know, put out all kinds of different ideas about different things to read. The challenge is if you're not inspired by what, by what it is that you're reading, you're not going to read it or you won't read it and absorb it. it. So in my opinion, to give out those bits of advice, periodically I'll throw something out. If somebody says, Hey, I'm, you know, really interested in learning more about X, Y, or Z. I can throw out a book that I'd said, you know, this happened to be something that was related to Z. So, yeah. you know, you might want to look into this one or some ideas about something else, but I really enjoy uh, biographies and autobiographies. And I like, to understand other people's journeys that have uh, 
because we're all having, you know, sometimes people think that there were, you know, human beings having spiritual experiences. And I tend to believe that we're spiritual beings having human experiences, but those human experiences have a lot of commonalities uh, between just each and every one of us that we're all in pursuit of something. And that something is just different in a lot of cases from the person that may be standing next to you, but, uh, but they're also in pursuit of something. And I think if you start to pursue the books that are focused on that something, it'll either increase your drive to know more about that, you know, quote unquote something. Um, and you'll become more, uh, just the educational level on that subject is just going to be greater. So whether that fulfills something within you personally, uh, or it's something that you feel it's the need to express to other people after learning it. I mean, there's a lot of people who over the last several thousand years, obviously have read many different types of, uh, religious and scholarly books in that sense. And as a result of reading and studying them, they go on and they try to share that information with others. And as with the martial arts, I don't believe you truly know anything until you've given it away to somebody else. So it really forces you to have a better understanding of it for yourself to be able to put it into words, to explain it to someone else. So they get it. And um, not only just them, but if you if you give that information out to multiple people, everybody's going to interpret it slightly different. So if you can get it across to a bunch of different types of, of minds and, and ways of thinking, you're going to be forced to then understand it and know it that much better for yourself. So that's kind of a round, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit out of the way answer to that type of a question, but yeah, I, I would just say read, read, read and read something that inspires you. Cause that's the best, best advice I've got on books. I've I've got so many of them. It's pretty hard to like try to pick anyone. Actually, I I'll I will pick one for you. Uh, read the power of one. Power of one. I only say that if you haven't read it before, but it does address the issue of apartheid in South Africa during the early 1900s. And I think if if you I know racism and uh, race is such a, a challenging subject for so many people that. I think if you got your brain wrapped around uh, enough knowledge on why we've arrived at the place we're at with race, I think more people would uh, – it doesn't excuse or condone anything that's negatively taking place with uh, any interracial conflict or or challenge, but at least it gives someone an idea of – like, where did this all come from? Like, we didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden there was a race issue. Um, but the, and then once you read it and anything else about that particular subject, my strongest recommendation is you forget it completely. <laughs> it's because we, um, we have a tendency to, it's, it's good to have an understanding, but then it's good to forget it. Cause I think the more people talk about it, uh, if you're trying, if you're trying to talk about things in a solution oriented way, uh, it's noble. But at the same time, if, if I had to talk with you, your, uh, ethnicity is what? Mexican. Yeah. Latino, from, yeah. From, from, from Mexico. Yeah. Mine, I was 
born in Massachusetts, but my family hailed from Holland at one point in time in history, and a mixture of that and you know French and Canadian and whatnot and uh, Native American. We're all a melting pot of just a whole variety of different things. If you go back far enough, we're going to end up having some sort of a, a you know, a, a connection towards where we're pretty much all coming from the same source anyways. So that's why I say try to forget it after that point, because the more you try to bring it up, it'd be more of an issue becomes about it. If you watch two uh, two toddlers at two years old of different races play with each other you can easily see that race is not something you're born into. It's yeah. something that you're taught. And sooner we can kind of move past that, I think, and realize that we're all just human beings uh-huh. uh, or, or beings rather. Or beings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so there's, there's, there's one book. Yeah. No, I, I remember one, one of the books you told me to read was the Dale Carnegie one. Uh, how to win, win friends, friends and influence people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that one, I stick to my heart. A lot, and I read it from time to time. Uh, I've actually taken the word "but" out of my vocabulary because Great. of that book. Great, and uh, I replaced it with "however," because uh, I know when, when when we're teaching, and I said, "All right, good job on your kicks, but keep your hands up." That negates everything when you say the word "but." However, and I, there I go. <laughs> However, <laughs> when a kid is kicking, he said, "Those are awesome kicks." Can you help me out? Or however, can you keep those hands up? That way they could become more strong and no one could hit you. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. They get excited. They get excited because I, I didn't say, but, which to me, after I read that, I was like, that is such a, you know, not a bad word, but such a negative impact on the kids. And yeah, I took it off from my vocabulary and I say, however, a lot. And, or I give them another, let's keep those hands up. You just, that way you don't get kicked in the face. And they get excited for it. Because I I have seen the difference when I say but um, strong kicks but keep those hands so they go oh okay so yeah the quality of your thoughts affect the quality of your words and the quality of your words affect the quality of somebody else's experience around you so the closer you pay attention to those words that are leaving your lips and prior to that being formed in your brain the I think the better life experience you're going to have not only for yourself, but for others around you. And it's, it can be challenging. There's no two ways about it. There's days that people wake up, uh, myself included, that will be, you'll just be off and you'll like, sometimes from, I'll speak for myself. I don't know why it's just not feeling right that day. Some things are just, it's not as it's being termed as clicking. It's just not clicking for you. Right. Uh, but if you change your mindset, change your, thoughts, you start to change what it is that you focus your thoughts on and you start to change what you focus your, your, you know, your experience becomes. So it's pretty powerful, especially if you're standing in front of a group of a bunch of eight-year-old kids or five-year-old kids, you know, they're, (laughs) they can, they can change your mindset for you. If you're not careful, Yeah, make you, make you want to throw a couple of them up and down in the air a couple of times, but, uh, but they're, they're, you know, they're, they're just they're being busy being five-year-olds. You know oh, what I mean? yeah. And it's, if you, if you don't remind yourself that, oh, that's what five-year-olds do. That's right. I've kind of forgot for a second. Yeah. Five-year-olds want to pick their nose and they want to wipe it on their friends sitting next to them. <laughs> you know, you can't really get mad at them for it because oh, no. that's what five-year-olds do. No, the best one for me is when I'm teaching a class and the kids go, where's Mr. S? Oh, he's inside. It's my turn to teach the class. Oh, so he's not going to come out? 
well, I'm here. Don't you guys want to get taught by me? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you just hear Mr. S in the background laughing, and I laugh too. I'm like, well, how about you give me a chance today, and then Mr. S will be here tomorrow. And they go, okay. That's a couple things in life that you can count on being extremely honest. Is, yeah. One is a five-year-old kid, and oh, yeah. the other is yoga pants. <laughs> Either way, you're getting honesty. (laughs) Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, Mr. V. Well, I mean, (laughs) we could sit here all day and talk. I mean, just reminisce of the old times. I do have one question, and without giving anything away, how did you come up with the black belt test? And without giving anything away, of course, (laughs) but uh, just the ideas that go into it of course we sit down at the beach drink martinis and watch dolphins and whatnot i just want to know how you got came up with those ideas <laughs> with that idea <laughs> yeah okay for for the listeners that are concerned that there's or or really want to join our studio because they think martinis and dolphins are involved <laughs> let me just stop you right there come for other reasons please but yes, not that one that. <laughs> uh, so i understand what your your question is yeah uh there is, for those, you know, if, if you're, if you're listening and you haven't been a student that have earned a black belt here, then you wouldn't know what takes place on our black belt test because we keep it uh, confidential to the point where uh, I think one of the biggest challenges for most humans is either the need for certainty or the lack of need so if you're an adventurous person, your need for certainty is probably less because you're kind of wanting it to be fresh and new and, you know, you want it to surprise you. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of people's brains that are wired to the point where they they almost need certainty almost to the point where if they don't have it, they're filled with anxiety, fear, doubt, worry, all the other different emotions that can plague a human uh, for not knowing how things are going to turn out. So we've kept this confidential so that we can do our best to create a level of uncertainty. And in spite of that uncertainty, the student will go into it with the confidence necessary to tackle any and all challenges that are put before them, even though they don't know what's about to take place. And I think as a result of that, there's a greater ability to pull from that experience later on in life after the test is done. Uh, for any other areas that you approach in your life that are like, you know, I just, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't really know what to do here. I don't know what this is going to be like, but you go for it and you do it anyways. And then usually you'll find out more often than not, it turns out way better than you anticipated because our minds are our you know, can be our best friends or our worst enemies. And for a lot of people, it tends to be your worst enemy more often than not. We'll conjure up, you know, demons and, you know, uh, you know, monsters and all kinds of other stuff in our head that just never, ever come to fruition. They never show their ugly face. And it usually turns out to be a little smiling kitten or a a little baby's (laughs) face instead. So, Uh, but um, as far as creating the, the four day test. I wanted it to be challenged because if somebody was going to train on for the number of years we've had, uh, we've been almost 30 years now uh, going at it. And 
for the most part, it's taken on an average of between anywhere between six to 12 years to get uh, to earn a black belt. Yes, so I figured anybody that's going to put that amount of time and effort and energy and finance for that matter into that goal for themselves, that there should be some sort of a monumental experience at the end of it that is something that's physically challenging, mentally and spiritually challenging, something that is they're going to be able to look back on and use as fuel to motivate them through any other hardship that they may come across later in life. So I set out with it with that in mind, and then I developed the different things that we do throughout the test in accordance to that one belief that I want it to be you know, memorable. And it doesn't necessarily, it is, as you know, because you've been through it, it is very physically arduous. You know, I've had people that have gone through it that have said it's been harder than, you know, military training that they've done or, you know, boot camps or anything like that. But, um, but it's also achievable. It's not something that we made so difficult that you're not going to be able to do it. And I know we're not trying to produce Navy SEALs or, you know, army rangers or any other elite military force, but we are, you know, looking to get you, if you'd ever do have to come down to defend yourself on the street, a lot of that is going to come to your, the intestinal fortitude to be able to fight on even against potentially a superior adversary. And if that adversary is stronger than you are and, or has potentially more skill or weaponry than you do, your ability to suck it up and drive on and do whatever it takes in order to thwart that attack. Because as we know, the end result, if you don't, is not pretty. So it's very difficult to replicate that in a, in a sanitary environment with amongst friends, Mm -hmm. because if you're my friend, I don't necessarily want to just keep walking up and punching you in the mouth as hard as I can to see if you're going to be tough enough to keep coming back after me. Um, But in some cases, you need to get hit sometimes and you need to get rocked. You need to get your bell rung. You need to get the wind knocked out of you. Um, and you need to be pushed to a point where you're, and I'm not saying all of this stuff is necessarily happening on your black belt test, yeah. as you know, but it's things that happen as a, over the course of time. If you're training, you know, with some level of reality, uh, you've got to go through those experiences because if not, there's going to be a bit of a hollow black belt for you waiting at the end that you're going to put it on and you're going to think that I'm part Superman and part superhero. And then you might realize that, you know, you more be more like Daffy duck and, you know, it's, it's not really a, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to, to create a sense of realism and get enough people to want to participate in that realism uh, in training. Therefore having a test like this gives them an opportunity in a controlled environment to still challenge themselves not really know what's next, rise up in spite of it. Um, and something to tell some stories to your other buddies who went through the same experience uh, later yes. and kind of, kind of <laughs> laugh and commiserate about the good times that went on oh, during yeah. it. But, uh, as you and I both know, it's not the black belt test that makes you a black no. belt. It's what you do it leading up to the black belt test that really makes it. That yeah. part is just really a formality. And I tried to make it as part fun and challenging so that that would be a great experience when it was all said and done. And hopefully I created that. I don't oh, know. You no, went through it. So you, 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 have. you would know. <laughs> but I mean, when you were saying the, the realism, get some bumps and bruises along the way of your journey, not necessarily in the black belt test. It was my yellow belt. test. <laughs> John Sloan. 
And, yes. and yes. Uh, I remember Ron, uh, Ron, Ron Jones, Ron, Mr. Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it was, a, it was three of us. And t- these guys are close to six foot, if not, and close to 200 Ron, pounds. Ron, Ron Jones seems like he's seven feet tall, but he's not, I don't even know if he's quite six foot tall. Maybe, he's, oh, maybe six he's feet. Just a he's big, a strong, yeah, he's strong a strong man. guy. I yep. just remember you. I don't know what I did that day, but you were like, Jose, you're going to wrestle those two. And I was like, wait, what? I'm over here seven, 16, 17, 18 years old. And I'm like, okay, I just remember getting tossed like a rag going home, going, oh. What oh Ron, Ron Jones, you know, <laughs> grew up with, on the streets of, you know, Compton and, and Watts oh, during the during the 60s. And uh, yes. yeah, definitely, uh, and John Sloney, he's got to be. Six three, two hundred and sixty oh, pounds. Yes. If he's yeah. a, if he's a pound, so uh, and he, you know he's also a, in the law enforcement as yes, well. So he he's a, he's he's not a, he's not a man to be joked around with. Oh no, I just I just remember getting tossed like a rag doll, and I just kept, what did I do to Mister V to deserve this? But I I mean it's those bumps and bruises that you realize. Wow, okay, if I could take that, you know, my confidence it did really rise up. My confidence did really go up because I withstood. Two guys, two big guys. I was like, okay, you know what? Bring it, and you know. And that's the, that's the, I think the goal of of getting some level of reality training. And both of those guys are great human beings, yes, so they, they wouldn't have set out to try to do no, you no, grave bodily harm. But at the same yeah. token, uh, knowing that they could, if they wanted to, oh, makes you forces you to raise your game to say, okay, well, let's let's that's beyond my toes about this one here, yeah. or we could get hurt. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's important. It's hard to substitute that by. By talking about it, you got to have to do it. I, I, just funny because I remember a few years, um, year and a half back, uh, doing jujitsu. I see John Sloan, and I'm like, "Oh, hey, John! Hey, Jose! How's it going? <laughs> All right, free grapple." I, I remember that yellow belt. I'm like, oh, "It's my turn now! It's my turn now!" <laughs> uh, good times. Yeah, good times. I mean, of course, that was nice and whatnot. It's, but it's just that yellow belt just came back and clicked, and I was like, "Oh, it's my turn now, John! It's my That's turn." Where you now. take that big stick out of your bag you've been carrying around ever yeah, since? Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, my turn. <laughs> my turn. Uh, well, Mr. V, uh, thank you so much again for your time. I thank appreciate you. it. I appreciate it. Uh, now, I've surprised everyone this, and I'm just, you're probably the best suited person for this. Any words of wisdom for your um, students or for anyone that's listening in that you could just give out on top of your head? Can you be more specific about what uh, types just, of words of wisdom? Uh, anything in particular, anything in general, like any parting words before we take off? Um. Well, there's obviously being being a teacher for so many years. There's obviously a lot of lessons that you know you work to yeah. impart on people. But if there's any, if I was to die tomorrow and you couldn't get another word out of me, I would say do your best to love one another. Uh, the martial arts is a great tool for a lot of different reasons. It's got a lot of benefits and a lot of attributes that I think help in the human experience and the journey that people have in life. But if the message of the power of one, the unity, the fact that we're all in this together, there is only one earth. Uh, you can choose to try to, you know, do something positive with it and about it and for it, or you can choose to do stuff that people do on a regular basis and either take it for granted, do stuff to it that is not, uh, 
sustainable and have the long-term best interests for not only the earth, but humanity in general, uh, at heart. And, you know, I just think that, uh, if we can get more people thinking about us collectively as a, as a species, instead of, uh, individually trying to pin it on, you know, it's my race. So these are my awards or this is my, this, and that's, you know, my, that it's just that we're, we're in this together. It's good to have pride. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, if the pride starts to overshadow, uh, someone else's and, or to the point where it's like, it's more about me and, or me or, and, or my quote unquote, my kind, I think that becomes detrimental to the long-term survivability of humanity without any conflict or violence. So you won't need martial arts in the capacities for self-defense if you don't have to worry about violence. So that would be my, my best bit of knowledge or advice I can give at that point. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Thank you for the people that want to join in. And this is the website, correct? Uh, uh, power of one martial arts.com and uh po1mma.com po1mma.com i think is going to be our, our newest site that's got probably the most relevant or relevant information on it so if you're in the long beach area lakewood area seal beach area carson city and even upland yep yeah power of one martial arts.com or po1mma.com yeah com uh, Colin Van Dusen, ladies and gentlemen, again, sir, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate Jose, it. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Have a good one, everyone.